On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the flu or the non-flu. Apparently the flu is non-existent this year. Why is that when everything else seems to be so catchy? Well, we'll figure that one out. Uh, we're also going to talk about Hamilton's Mountain or the new name for Hamilton's Mountain. Some people, some groups, while well, they're pushing for a new, a new branding, let's call it, of that area of the city. We'll discuss that. And we're going to talk about wine based on a story that we're going to talk about involving expensive wine and non-expensive wine. Do you think you can tell the difference? Are you one of those who can tell the difference? Well, we'll talk about that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Have you got your flu shot yet? We've heard that flu shots are now available. You can go to pharmacies or other places. Some workplaces are giving them out for free. And the, pr the press, a full court press has been on to get people to get their flu shot this year for obvious reasons. I think, I don't think it requires much explanation with what we've been through. Doctors do not want people getting the flu on top of everything else. Now we are just at the beginning of flu season here, but a very interesting thing has happened or is seeming to be happening. Early reports say there are almost no cases of the flu showing up this year. The Public Health Agency of Canada says it has received just eight positive tests in the most recent week of recording across the country. Eight tests across Canada. And half of those, they say, may have been the result of people getting a vaccination. So I guess a fake positive or something popping up that way. But it's more than that. But because if you go back between March and October of this year, now, not typically flu time to be sure, but between March and October this year, that same group, the Public Health Agency of Canada, it had just 12 cases reported compared to a usual year of about 600. And it's not just here. In the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia, for example, where it's winter or they're just finishing winter, they're coming out of their flu season. They had very, very, very few cases of the flu. I mean, way exponentially lower than usual. Now, this, you would think, has something to do with COVID. You would think, because everything has something to do with COVID. But what is the connection if there is one or what is going on? Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid is a health policy expert. We love having him on the show as much as we can. He joins us this evening. Dr. Khalid, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, the obvious thing here, I think, would be the flu is not as prevalent in Australia or now coming here because social distancing and masks are being worn and that's helping. But could that alone be essentially shutting out the flu completely? Well, I think that, you know, we, we've always said this about COVID-19 and the flu is that we know that COVID-19 doesn't care about the weather. Because early on, Scott, when back in February, we've seen cases of COVID-19 higher in countries that had warmer temperatures or colder ones. So, but when it comes to flu, looking at the Australia is actually huge for us here in Canada. Australia just came out of their winter season, sorry, their summer season, uh, going into, sorry, their summer season, they just came out of their winter. And we saw that they actually had exceptionally low cases of the flu, which tells us that, you know, we probably will be seeing a similar thing when it comes uh, for us this year. And that's not that big of a surprise, Scott, given that we have much better public health measures in place than ever. I mean, you know, if you recall this time last year, how many people do you know within your circle were actually washing their hands at all times? We're occasionally wearing face masks. Ideally, they should be wearing it all the time. Yeah, and zero. Social distancing. Yeah, exactly. Zero. So life has changed. And by that is that we, we are expecting to see a lower cases of influenza virus this year. 
I mean, the other thing that I wondered about, and I mean, that's a logical part of this for sure. The other thing I wondered about was whether COVID has scared people sufficiently that everybody has rushed out to get the flu vaccine, but I don't think that can be true. It's certainly not yet. Not everybody has their flu vaccine yet. So that can't be the reason for this at this point. I don't think. Well, we know, we know that's not to be true because like you said, the flu vaccine, although uh, people are more, we know from studies now that more Canadians are willing to get the flu vaccine this year than ever. They're actually not as available as we would like them to be. Uh, and so the supply of flu vaccines across the urban settings, especially like downtown Toronto or some urban settings has been difficult. So we, we know that it, we haven't reached the coverage that you could make that kind of a statement and say everybody who got the vaccine and therefore we have low numbers. I think what most most of us, when we look at the evidence, what we're noticing is the increased public health measures have really made an impact. I mean, the flu vaccine, I just have to remind everybody that in March, when we went into our first lockdown, it essentially shut down the flu vaccine. We ended the flu outbreak season. Uh, we saw barely any cases the minute we went into a lockdown. So that was a huge telling sign that you know, early on, there is evidence to indicate that the increase in public health measures, I mean, that was an extreme one because we were all forced into a lockdown, really stopped the flu in, in its tracks. And the same idea this year, that if we continue to social distance, we continue to safe hand hygiene, wear our face masks, I actually suspect we might have the, one of the lowest flu uh, rates ever. Does influenza, I think I know the answer, but I'm not positive. Does influenza require carriers? In other words, if few people have it to begin with because fewer people have got it because we're distancing, will the numbers remain low because it's not going to be spread as much? Yeah, it's spread through respiratory droplets. And so it's very similar to how COVID-19 is spread. Uh, so the, the less people that have it, the less likely it is to be transmitted to other individuals. And if you have it and you're wearing a, a mask and you're safe hand hygiene, keeping social distance, the chance of you giving it to somebody else is exceptionally low. This is why the two going together. Uh, you almost wonder, Scott, why we didn't have those measures in the first place. Uh, and I know the counter argument to that is that people don't really enjoy wearing face masks, but at least the safe hand hygiene, I mean, that's something that we should have been uh, encouraging people to practice more for a long time. That is a fascinating question that you just raised. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dr. Khalid made, I think, a fascinating point, and that is, why did we not, if, if, if washing hands and wearing masks and social distancing is showing such promise or such impact, why did we not do this before? And let me raise this question with you, doctor, because... If you die, you die. I don't think people who are dying of some disease really care what the disease is that's killing them. They're just upset that it's killing them. We've had 10, 000, roughly 10,600 people die of COVID this year in Canada. That's very bad. But Statistics Canada says 8,500 people die of the flu or pneumonia, typically. It's not that big a difference. So are we going to now be looking at this and saying... Going forward, we should every winter when flu season strikes, have social distancing, be wearing masks, be washing hands, have lockdowns, all those things. Well, well j just, I mean, you raise up a good point, Scott, but just to be clear here, people who are dying from COVID-19. It's not a pleasant death. So that's people usually in the ICU units with ventilations and, and tracheal tubes in their mouth. So it's really not pleasant. Nobody wants to die out of COVID-19. When you compare that, to, compare that to other types of deaths, it's not the same. So we don't want people to die of COVID-19. It's not the, the best way to, to go. 
uh, to back to your question, I think that, yeah, I think this is a question we've been asking for a long time, but I'll keep it very sort of honest and straightforward here. If you actually, if I just ask uh, my own circle of friends, and I'm sure, Scott, if you do the same, and you ask people, do you enjoy wearing face masks? Or even a better question is, will you wear face masks when the government says you no longer have to wear them? I can't find any one from my own circle of friends, and many of them are healthcare providers who would agree to that. Uh, because they say, well, you know what? I really don't like the way they fit. I don't, I can't breathe properly in them. I sometimes I forget to have them when I leave the house. And the point I'm trying to make here is that, although in an ideal world it'd be incredible if we continue wearing face masks, if we continue social distancing and hand hygiene, we know that the majority of people seem to still not enjoy wearing a face mask. Uh, I have become used to it. I have come to come to enjoy wearing it because it's giving me an extra layer of protection for both the flu and COVID-19, but the majority of people I know, I can't wait for the day where we are not told we have to wear them. We also look at at countries in Asia where masks are sort of uh, part of the culture, and there they wear it because the number of people is much more, and the, the social distancing doesn't happen as often, right? Like There are very condensed spaces with a large volume of people, so they have face masks there as part of their culture because they understand they're very, like, it's sort of like a sardine structure. They're very tightly put together. That's not the case in Canada. We're a big country uh, with not enough people in it. Uh, and so we have social distancing. The question becomes is that can we really implement uh, sort of masks across the board for the whole year? That's time will tell that. And I'm really curious to find out if, if our Canadian contacts, our Canadian population will continue to wear masks once COVID-19 is behind us. And if maybe we need to specify a little closer then. So you're correct, obviously, about COVID. Nobody wants to die of COVID. Uh, and and the way, as you described, is, is a horrible thing. But I think most seniors would say, I don't want to die of the flu either. And so even if we mm-hmm. just re- reduce it to seniors, will we see doctors telling seniors now who are in the category who are most susceptible they're not the only ones susceptible, but most susceptible. Would we be seeing a lot more doctors telling seniors, you have to every winter now carry on as if it's still COVID time to keep yourself safe from the flu? It's going to be really important to give that message to everybody. I think that this is a bit controversial to say, and I know that the audience might not be a big fan of what I'm about to say, which is that in an ideal world, I think that we should all be continuing to wear face masks, to continue to social distance to the best of our ability, not to the extreme that we're living in now, which is lockdowns and restaurants being shut down. That is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about that when you are outside, we keep a safe distance between us and others. Uh, and I'm not talking about people within your own bubble. I'm talking about, you know, when life is back to normal, when COVID-19 is behind us, can we imagine a world where we actually continue to wear face masks when we go out in public spaces? That when we're lining up to grab our coffee or we're going to stores, we're not sort of, you know, packed so tight together that we're, you know, risking the higher rate of transmission of respiratory diseases, that we continue to wash our hands. I think that's ideal. Now, will that happen? We know from evidence that human behavior tends to, you know, when the risk is not there anymore, we sort of lessen how much we stick to the regulations or the interventions being put in place. So, but maybe COVID-19 is the change in our sort of trajectory Hmm. of public health because it's a big crisis. We only have a minute left here. Um, Reading, no, no, and and reading a story that I I found as I was getting ready for this from late 2018, it was talking about that year's flu season. And it was talking about the 2017-18 flu season was about the worst in recent memory. And now we've got COVID 
wondering, are these diseases that we're facing, are they getting stronger or are we and our constitutions and our defenses getting weaker? We know for a fact that pandemics are on the rise, crises on the rise, and that things, uh, pathogens are getting stronger and more uh, virulent and more uh, likely to transmit faster. That's because for many, many reasons that we can spend hours talking about. But you're correct. We know that crises are on the rise. And this is why it is no longer a matter of conversation about how do we, you know, once we put interventions for the time being until they're over, we actually need to adapt and adapt fast. And now we need to figure out how to live with crises and pandemics. We need to have the infrastructures in place in case that we have another crisis in the near future. We're not going to lockdowns. We can adapt to them quickly. It's, uh, it's a fascinating thing, what's going on with the flu right now or what's not going on with the flu and how it's connected. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Of course. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. For as long as I have been in Hamilton, and for the record, that's since 1989 when I moved here after university to work at The Spectator as a summer student, which thankfully turned into something. Uh, but anyway, as long as I've been in Hamilton and even long before that, the city has been divided into two regions. I mean, there's more than that, but two specific regions. There's the lower city and there's the mountain. And we have all kinds of evidence of how it has been known as the mountain. We have the mountain arena and mountain tire. You always hear those commercials here on the station and Cineplex Hamilton Mountain and Mountain Mosque and Mountain Plaza. And there's churches with the name mountain in it. And even a federal riding of Hamilton Mountain. But that may be changing a bit. Mm-hmm. It is 2020. Why not? Mountain, in, for some people, is now being replaced with Uptown. Uptown Hamilton is the new descriptor. Krista Boyer is a real estate agent who does many listings on the mountain. She is from around here. Krista joins us now. Krista, how are you tonight? I am I'm well, Scott. How are you? And I think you meant to say I do many listings uptown. Uptown. Exa- well, yes. Okay, uptown. So this is really a thing, right? It is. And you know what? Uh, I can't take credit for starting it. Uh, I first became aware of it uh, a few years ago. Uh, when I was working with Try Hamilton, and we had a similar mindset to it. So it, it just kind of already jived with us, you know, looking at the mountain as uptown Hamilton. Well, okay, so what is the, I mean, it kind of, I suppose it has more of an upscale sounding sound to it. What, what would be the reason for changing it to that? You know, the way we saw it, we look at the mountain in terms of one, you know, there's the technical aspect of it. It's not actually a mountain. And then it's just <laughs> this idea, right? And then it's also this idea of a mountain being, you know, this incredible thing to to climb, to get up to. Whereas, you know, when we look at it through urban details, the idea of uptown and downtown just makes it seem so much more connected. And, and it does. It has, you know, more of this great upscale feeling to it. The idea, though, I mean, do you run into anybody who pushes back because it is so ingrained in Hamiltonians that it's Hamilton, even though you're absolutely right on a, on, by the definition of what a mountain is, we really don't fit it. But it, it's so ingrained that it's Hamilton Mountain. Yes, absolutely. And I can understand it's always hard 
um, to be involved in change, right? So I can understand that adage of the old uh, view of it's the mountain. However, I will say I haven't yet personally myself, some of my friends or colleagues have run into those individuals who have been adverse to the uptown, but I have surprisingly run into individuals who have been using it um, that area, remarking on it as being uptown. I was surprised the first time it happened. It was actually when I was doing a showing of one of my commercial properties, and it was two young men, and they referred to the area as uptown Hamilton. And I asked them where they had heard it from. They couldn't pinpoint where. They just knew that that is how you referred to that area. Is it, is the enti- so is it the entire mountain, or is it a part of the mountain that's considered uptown? Well, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't give you the exact boundaries. Uh, again, I'm not responsible for this, but sure. the way I would envision it would be, yes, you know, you'd look at that entire area. Is that's, that's our uptown Hamilton. When, and you may have said this already, and I may have just missed it, but when, how long ago did you first become aware or, or how far back has this been going on without me having any idea that anyone has called it this? Is this like, are we talking days or weeks or months or years? We're, we're talking years, so it was 2018 when we first entered into the debate of Uptown versus Hamilton Mountain. Uh, and since then, uh, I, I, my understanding is, is not as much of an ongoing debate anymore that people are embracing it. Um, and like I said, you know, I, I had it organically come to me from others. So when you, put, uh, when you put a listing now, do you say Hamilton Mountain or do you say Uptown in your listing? I refer to it as the uptown. I do. Really? Yeah. I mean, somebody that I mentioned this to today, uh, their immediate response was, well, this is, this is the Toronto influence seeping into Hamilton that we're trying to give it that fancier name. I mean, is that, is that, do you think, is that where this has come from? Is people coming to the city? And I mean, there's an uptown area of Toronto and there's of other cities as well, big urban metropolitan areas. Is that where the idea comes from? Do you think, or do we know? See, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I know um, uh, my first exposure to it was with the concession BIA, and it was with individuals who are involved in that community and who are not from Toronto. They are not transplants of the area. They are Hamilton through and through, as I am. And really, it was just looking to become a bit more progressive as far as how are we identifying ourselves. And, you know, it, it's like anything else. There's times where we need to rethink the way in which we promote ourselves. And I think that was something that for them, it, it was time had come, time had passed where mountain isn't working more. Let's look at us in a refreshed kind of light and uptown was it. Now do, okay, so is it catching on beyond, so I know like I've looked online and and on Twitter and stuff and uh, there's a number of businesses that will hashtag Uptown. I mean, there are people in the area who are using this, you're using it. Do most people though, if you put hashtag Uptown or say, I'm going to go Uptown, do most people, do you think, know what that means right now? I I, I think there's obviously like a small um, sector of us who do. I think there's still obviously a lot of growth yet to be had, a lot of you know, exposure yet to be had in order for everyone to completely understand that that is the uptown because, you know, even with, you know, going back to the Torontonian crowd, they come to Hamilton and they immediately are introduced to that area as being the mountain, right? So there's still, there's still an opportunity there uh, for, for more people to understand it as the new uptown. 
It is a uh, it is a fascinating change, and it is a fun change, and it's one that I am uh, I'm guessing people will have opinions on <laughs> as we go yeah, forward. Absolutely, <laughs> uh, Krista Boyer, real estate agent. You can find her online if you have a listing. You can call Krista. There you go, uh, Krista. Thanks so much for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, you heard it just a moment ago. There is a move afoot. And it's not nefarious in any way, but it's a a changing of the way we look at things, perhaps, or an attempt to do so, that Hamilton Mountain should be known as Uptown Hamilton instead of Hamilton Mountain. What do you think about the idea? You're all on board with it? It's a great, it's a new change. It gives us a, a fresh, shining veneer for the city. Or are you saying, no, 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 come on, we're Hamilton. Let's not, let's not fancy it up. We're Hamilton. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Love the idea? Not so much in favor of the idea. Michelle is first up today on the show. Michelle, how are you tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Um, are you an uptown girl or a mountain girl? Okay, so um, your guest doesn't really know the history of Hamilton. So I grew up on mountain. I'm in my 60s. And okay. he used to say, I'm going uptown, which referred to I'm going downtown. Okay. So that's what uptown meant going downtown. So, so I don't know. Now I'm really confused. To, uh, really, <laughs> that's how it okay. was. That's, that's how, how it so uptown was, was really so downtown. Okay. Right. That's how, how, how it was. And, you know, so she doesn't know the history of Hamilton. Well, so would you, regardless of that, are, do you think the idea is kind of fun and kind of good to rebrand the mountain or are you saying, no, no, keep it as the mountain? The mountain's the mountain. Like, you know, okay. these people who come from Toronto, like, you know, you know, you know, why are you trying to change what everybody is so used to? You know, Michelle, because, you know? no, thank you. I thank you for your call. I really do. I appreciate your insights. Let me move to Tony. Sorry to move from along. We've got a lot of people lined up here. Uh, 905-645-3221, by the way, or star 9900. Tony joins me on the line now. Tony, how are you tonight? Not too bad. Just listening to your conversations. And it's uh, kind of irritating sometimes. But like the lady just said, when we lived downtown, uh, down down in the lower city, if you were yes. living in the east end or west end, you said you were going uptown. You went up to King of James. That's, that's so it was really happened. sideways town then. Yeah. This, but when yeah. you're up here in the hill, uh, I'll call it the escarpment or the mountain or the hill, it's, it, you say it's Upper Sherman or it's Upper Wentworth or it's Upper Wellington or Upper James or Upper uh, 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 Paradise or something like this. They always refer to whatever the lower city is. That's the name of the street. And then you're going to the upper upper section of that same name of street. So it's actually just an upper and lower. So it almost makes sense then to call it uptown. Well, I don't know whether you would call it uh, uptown because it's, no, it's the upper mountain, uh, upper city. Tony, I thank you for your call. I really do appreciate the thank insight. You. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Let, let me go to Gary, who is waiting patiently. Gary, how are you tonight? Fine, fine. Excellent. Uptown or well, mountain? See, I'm agreeing with the other two callers. I grew up in the north end of Hamilton. I'm uh, I'm almost 80 right now. And we said uptown. Again, it was going to uh, King Street and Main Street area. You know, the Eaton store and the likes of that. And we said downtown. We were going to the Ottawa area and the Kenilworth area. And Hamilton Mountain was very, very, was nothing up Hamilton Mountain 
back then. And, of course, I live in Mount Hope now, so it's still Hamilton Mountain, this area. So well, now we could change confusing. it to Up Hope. Up Hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's very confusing when, you know, I still feel, you know, I still call those two areas, you know, down King Street, that is uptown, and, of course, I call the Kenilworth area and that downtown. And, you know, so it's very confusing when you start changing things. Gary, absolutely. Listen, thank you for your it's call. I really do. People that, that talk this way. <laughs> well, hey, it's you know what? It's uh, there are certain things that are burned into your brain after a number of years, and I'm guessing the mountain may be one of them. Thank you for the call, okay. Gary. I really bye appreciate bye. it. Uh, I, just before we get on to the next call, and by the way, nine zero five six four five three two two one or star nine nine zero zero. Do you like the idea of Hamilton Mountain as uptown, or do you just like it as the mountain? Um, I, I must say that listening, and I am a transplanted Torontonian. I am now a Hamiltonian by choice, just in case anyone, every time I have to say I'm from Toronto originally, yes, but I've chosen to live here. So, uh, you know, that says something, I think. Anyway, when you listen to people about the old times or older times before I even got here, so uptown was either going downtown or uptown was going sideways. <laughs> it's Boy, you people make it confusing. I got to tell you, these Hamilton, although still for a transplanted Torontonian, I said this earlier today, there is nothing more confusing than the fact that the lake is north. Because if you grew up in Toronto, the lake is south and you will forever have it in your head that the lake is south. And when you drive north, you should be hitting something other than water. You should be driving. Anyway, let me go to Fred. Fred is waiting patiently to come on. Fred, how are you tonight? How are you doing? I'm great. Are you uptown or are you mountain? I'm escarpment. I, <laughs> I lived uh, when I was younger. My family had a house down in Bay and Chief Street down in the North End. So when things got better, job-wise than that for my father, we went up. And up higher is on the escarpment, which we call the mountain. And when you live on the mountain, you are uh, on a status of something, Okay when you leave downtown. So that's what a lot of people have done. They've moved up to the escarpment and they call that the upper Hamilton, not the upper town, it's Hamilton. And there's a lower Hamilton and a higher. And a lot of people want to get up on the higher, as you know, Scott, a lot of development up here. Like the one gentleman said, there wasn't any development years ago, but there's lots now. And uh, it's a better part of the city is on the escarpment, not downtown. Fred, I thank you for the call. So we've got mountain, 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 and now escarpment. Fred, thanks for the call. Uh, it's an interesting one. I, I love the discussion because it, um, you know, it is it is different. It is something that we're not used to. And, and I suspect that the uptown idea is not going away anytime soon. And there will be an interesting debate over the next number of years about whether or not we go with uptown or stick with mountain. We'll see. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about wine and I'll tell you why I want to talk about wine because I read a story yesterday and I was going to do it as part of Ben's story of the day. If you don't know what Ben's story of the day is, that's because you missed the first hour. Always catch the first hour of the show as well. Nonetheless, I was going to do it as a segment on Ben's story of the day. And then I thought, no, 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 there's a, there's a good discussion here. Story goes like this. There was a restaurant in New York City that had two tables that had both ordered wine. One table was filled with a young couple, not filled, had, had a young couple who had ordered an $18 Pinot Noir. 
at a restaurant, I mean, you go to the LCBO, that's probably a 10 or $12 bottle. Restaurants have a markup. So an $18 Pinot Noir. The other table, there were a couple guys or a few guys having a business meeting and they ordered a Mouton Rothschild 1989 that was a $2,000 bottle of wine. Two, two very different bottles. So you can guess what's going to happen here. This is like an episode of Three's Company. The, when the restaurant poured the wine into their decanters to take to the table, they somehow got mixed up. So now the young couple is sitting there joking about how, oh, we're pretending like they're drinking really expensive wine because they don't have a lot of money. They really were. They were drinking a $2,000 bottle. Meanwhile, these Wall Street businessmen who were at the other table are talking about how smooth and rich and excellent this $2,000 bottle was when they were really drinking an $18 Pinot Noir. Now the restaurant owned up, fessed up to their mistake, blah, 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 on and on it goes. But it's a great story and it got me thinking, you know, I'm glad about that because it seems to me that I'm not the only one now who doesn't really know the difference between a really expensive and a really inexpensive bottle of wine. It's kind of, you drink it and if it tastes good, it tastes good. Just before we get to my guest, there was a 2008 study that did 6,000 blind tastings, blind tastings. And what it found was in most cases, unless you had specific training in wine sampling or wine drinking or wine swishing or whatever, most people enjoyed the less expensive wines more. So why are we paying so much when we do for expensive bottles of wine? Let me bring in Britt Dixon, who works in the wine industry. She does a lot of coverage of the industry, deals with all kinds of stuff around wine. We always love having Britt on. Britt, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. So this, as I read this, would seem to bolster my <laughs> argument that most people who are drinking wine have no stinking idea what it is they're drinking. It's true. I mean, there are, uh, <laughs> I think there are a select number of people who, you know, those master sommeliers, the masters of wine who have spent years of their careers doing blind tastings and, you know, tasting wines from all different wine regions and all different vintages and learning, you know, everything about them. They can pick them out in blind tastings. And then, you know, they and those wine writers and wine critics who are using the, the scoring systems to score your wine. You know, when you shop for wine at the LCBO, you'll often see on the label or the bottle like this was awarded 91 points from so and so critic. And then there's just a lot of people who love wine, who just like drinking it and they like, you know, maybe they just like they like having a glass. They like learning about it, but not to that same level. And for most people, it's totally up to what your what it, what your palate enjoys so for me for instance I mean I have done wine courses I've tasted a lot of wines I work within the industry where I interview winemakers and I educate people about wine I try to do so in the most you know simplest way possible and I keep it fun when I create my content for social media I'm all about educating people in a way that makes sense for the regular wine drinker. So I'm going to drink what I, what I enjoy drinking and it's probably not going to be a $2,000 bottle of wine or even a hundred dollar bottle of wine, you know? So, well, I, I went on the LCBO's website just before we came on the air because I thought, I wonder what the most expensive bottle of wine is that you can buy right now in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure in private sales, you could get more, but as, as far as the average person, 
There is a uh, 2004 Chateau Latour that is currently for sale on the LCBO's website for $10,540. Now, <laughs> Britt, first of all, I am not buying one. But second of all, if I was to take 100 average people who consume wine with dinner or just like a glass of wine, how many do you think, if I were to put a little bit of that wine in front of them and a little bit of an $8 bottle of wine, how many could do you think either discern the difference or would say that that would be their preference over the two? Out of the two. I think I think it depends what uh, I think I think to your point not a lot of people could pick it out but someone who drinks wine regularly and they know what they like say they like um, you know big red wines oaked oaked wine so they know they like those like those tannins those sort of smooth oaky tobacco-y vanilla like those sort of spicy flavors that come along with red wines that eight dollar bottle of wine probably hasn't spent time in oak um, and probably hasn't aged for a long period of time. So if, if that's the sort of wine you prefer, you might, you would try that, that $8 one. And then you would try that super expensive wine that has, you know, most definitely been made from those great quality grapes in an area that's been growing grapes for um, years and years and years. And that has spent time cellaring and has spent time in oak barrels. And so you'd pick out those flavors that maybe, you know, to the, to, the, to your palate, you might not know why you enjoy that wine or why it tastes a little bit different, but it, it's because of those things. So there are, are reasons why wine costs more, why you can buy an $8 bottle of wine or even, you know, a $40 bottle of wine. And it all depends on those things like a French oak barrel. If you're going to age a red wine in a French oak barrel, those cost, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars and they're only used, you know, four or five times before they, they lose those great oak flavors. So, and, you know, the labor that went into those grapes, were they picked by a machine or were they handpicked? If, if, if that wine's made from grapes that are handpicked, then that's going to up that price of the bottle. Where they're uh, grown, if they're premium grapes, um, you know, and a lot of it does come from the prestige that comes from those top wine producers and regions like Bordeaux, France, in the case of this wine that you're talking about. Um, and even things like bot- like the bottle, the packaging, the weight of the bottle, the glass color, um, things like that. So there are things that go into the price of a bottle of wine and why some wines are priced higher than others. I, I find myself very much like Michael Scott from The Office. Uh, just want to play a clip. This is, this is me and I think a lot of other people when talking about wine. Ben, hit that clip. There. <laughs> How about a toast? Tell I? Here's to good friends. Cheers. 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 Hmm. That is sort of an oaky afterbirth. Yeah, there you go. The oaky afterbirth. That, uh, <laughs> well, as soon as you said the oak barrel, I was like, yeah, you know what? Michael Scott had it right. The oaky afterbirth that, uh, that wine gives <laughs> off. Um, I, I just, uh, there are so many tests that you can go online and find. I was watching one that Vox did, the magazine, the online magazine Vox did, where they tested less expensive wines versus more expensive wines. And almost everybody who tested it liked the less expensive. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, there seems to be something to that, that you pay more for more complex mm-hmm. flavors that, I mean, there, I don't think anyone's arguing there is no difference between the wines, but it almost seems as though when you pay more thinking that it's going to be more delicious, that for most people, unless you're trained, it actually is, there's a reason why you may not enjoy it as much. Mm-hmm. Well, and for those, 
uh, less expensive wines, they tend to have a little bit more residual sugar left over from the grapes. And most people's palate prefer things that are a little bit sweeter or things that are, you know, easy drinking. For most wine drinkers, they just want something that they can, you know, pair well with something that they're eating or, or a glass on their own. And, and so a lot of those times, those wines are those, you know, simple wines that don't have a ton going on. They're, you know, fruit forward, they're easy drinking, um, and they're palate pleasing for a lot of people. Do you think though, that the price tag affects our taste buds? That if you Um, know it's an expensive (laughs) bottle, you're probably going to convince yourself that it tastes delicious. I think so. Uh, I actually worked with a colleague once who like used to go to parties where someone would serve expensive wine and always talk, be talking about these great wines that they, found in this area of the world or that. And, and, you know, they were always trying to trick him by putting cheaper wines in the expensive bottles to see if he'd still think it was great. So I think there is that perception in our heads that if we think a a bottle of wine tastes or a bottle of wine is more expensive, it should taste better. And I think that's when a lot of people are surprised in blind tasting if they do prefer the one that's less expensive. Well, that's great. If you prefer a wine that's less expensive, then then you, you know, you're not shelling out big bucks for all these expensive wines. (laughs) Well, I I don't want to be one of those people who has to be, you know, when you're, when you're swishing the wine around on your tongue and stuff and you hear all these things that are, that wine experts tell us are in there that they go, it's got a hints of pear and avocado and tar and a little bit of saddle leather and Nerf football. I mean, like some of these times when they describe these things, like, wait, why do I want saddle leather in my wine? I've never understood that part. Is that a good thing? Um, I I just want to say, hey, it's good wine. Yeah, and that's all like if you've, you know, if you're not a fan of, I don't know, a Granny Smith apple, then maybe if you're drinking a nice crisp Riesling, that doesn't, you can't, that that flavor doesn't make sense. If you're reading it on the label to say, you'll get hints of, of, you know, citrus and Granny Smith apple. And if, if that's not something that you taste and know the taste of, then that doesn't make sense for you. So when I, you know, create content or do some storytelling within the Ontario wine industry, my main goal is let's not tell people what they should be tasting. Like, you know, let's find those great stories behind the wineries. Let's educate them about, you know, uh, maybe a vineyard that, that is home to some of the oldest grapevines in, in Canada. Like let's find other ways to educate them to make wine more approachable and more fun because it's supposed to be fun. I don't, I don't, I, I never look at how, like what that rating is on that bottle of wine. What motivates me to buy a bottle of wine is, if I've heard a really great story from, from that winery or that producer, you know, even a unique label, but it's not that number that someone has decided to slap on that label that I might not agree with, you know, what their tasting structure is. But am I not, am I wrong that there is, or there can be anyway, a certain level of elitism in wine that there is, you know, that there's some, there, there is some snobbery in wine. If you go and buy an $8 bottle, um, and someone behind you in line is grabbing a hundred dollar bottle, you know, there, there's, there's, there is a little bit, and it's not just wine, but it's one of the areas where I really believe there are those who will look up their nose or look down their nose, whichever way your nose goes, um, at you drinking. (laughs) If you buy them a bottle of wine and that you like take it over for a gift, they're going to be like right online looking up to see how much that wine costs. (laughs) come on you know you know we all live in fear of buying that bottle of wine to give (laughs) us a gift that the person's going to do that we got to make sure it at least reaches a certain price even if the wine is crap got to make sure at least it looks like we spent something 
I have several like either families, family or friends who aren't wine drinkers who are just like paranoid to buy me a bottle of wine because they don't know like maybe this night might not be good enough. And I'm like the least wine snobbery person. Like for me, it's all about exploring and having fun and, and enjoying what I like. And that's what I encourage other people to as well. But when I go back to the snobbery and again, it's not everybody, but we don't, there's something about wine. We don't want to look like a schmuck. We don't want to look like we don't have any kind of taste or culture or something. So we, if we believe that we're serving better wine, then we probably feel better about ourselves rather than, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, there are other areas, as I say, but wine seems like one of those where there is that, that need to look like we know what we're talking about, even though most of us have no clue. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you're right. You know, it's like the people who will buy some cake out and put it on a fancy plate just to make themselves feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shouldn't, shouldn't though, and and I mean, this is where it gets right down to it. If we can say that you can really enjoy a 10 or a $12 bottle of wine, even potentially more than a $100 bottle of wine for some people, shouldn't more expensive mean better? Isn't that normally how we, I mean, if you buy a much more expensive car, you, I don't think anyone's going to argue that buying a a Mercedes is better than buying a whatever, but in wine, it doesn't seem like that same thing applies. It's a very subjective better. It is. And and it's like all those things that I talked about from the beginning, you know, the, the, the small production, how it's oaked, the extended aging, the labor that went into it, the premium grapes, the cost associated, it's all of those things that, that then impact the price. So if, but if that's not the kind of wine style that you like, then you could shell out a hundred dollars for that bottle of wine and you're not going to enjoy it as much as that, you know, cheaper, unoaked, more fruit forward mm. bottle of wine. So it literally depends on what your palate prefers. And I really do, as I say, I go back to my point, I really do believe that if you know what the price of the bottle is, it's going to affect what you think. And, and I use an example. I remember one time, uh, someone I knew, it wasn't wine, it was a, a spirit, but did a sampling of some insanely, you know, wildly priced whiskey or something that had been found in a cellar after whatever number of years and got just half a thimble full and all it was so <laughs> effusive in how great this was. And I'm thinking, even if it had been swill, just knowing that you're drinking this drink that costs $20,000 for the bottle, there's no way you were not going to think it was great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, there definitely is that association. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think the LCBO, I'm not going to give them ideas, but if they just jacked up all the prices, so every bottle was at least $300, we would just think that the wine was fantastic. We wouldn't drink much, but um, it would all be amazing. Anyway. Uh, well, Britt the Dixon. wines that are coming out of this year are going to be amazing. Like to say what you will about 2020, but the, the, the hot summer that we had and the amazing fall that we had, I just did an interview with one of the main grape growers in Niagara this week. And he was so excited about the wines and the quality of the grapes. And, you know, there's, there's less tonnage, but definitely higher quality. So those wines are going to be amazing once they're the, uh, So there's something mix- to look forward to. Mixing in a little COVID with the grapes has just yeah. worked wonder. Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Britt Dixon, you can find her on Instagram. You can find her stuff all over the place. Uh, she writes and videos and does all kinds of things on the wine industry. It's always great stuff. Britt, thanks for taking time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me bring Ben in for just one sec, just before we go to a break, because Ben is a guy who has been taking courses lately in 
well, uh, mixing drinks and bar, not even bartending. It's, it's more than that. He's not, Ben is not just becoming like a hack bartender. He's studying this stuff. And do you agree with Brit that, it, you know, or, or with me that if you know that something is more expensive, you're probably going to believe in your own head or convince yourself that it's better. I think part of it's the social elements where people go, oh man, everyone else is going to be like, this is amazing. So I have to like it. Even though you don't like it, you're going to tell people, this is great. I love it. Because you don't want to look like a boob. Exactly. And then your alternative is, wow, you just spent like $300 on me and I don't like it at all. I, I, like, look, if you're, if you're someone who's got endless resources, if you're a, a professional athlete who's making $30 million a year, I mean, go ahead and buy whatever bottles of wine you want. But if you're the average person and you're going out buying a hundred or $200 bottles of wine because you believe somehow, and you're not a trained sommelier or something to me, you're a moron. Because I, I, I truly, I truly, I mean, with few exceptions of those people who are trained, I truly don't believe that you're getting a bottle of wine that's 10 times better. Let's say if you buy a $200 bottle, I don't believe the wine is 10 times better than the $20 bottle. But that's where you have that interesting element of, is it 10 times your personality, like your personal preference? In some cases, I find that Absolutely. Start bottom of the barrel, find what you do like and what you don't like, and why do you like it? And from there, oh, well, there's another one similar to this, and it's a little bit more. Let's try that. And just start branching upwards. And yeah, I guarantee you, eventually you will find that $300 bottle that's like, yes, I want two of those right now, and this is worth it. No, I just want a $7 bottle of, $7 box of Ruby Rouge. <laughs> Ruby Rouge, September, 2020. It's not even turned into wine yet. It's still just grape juice. Just throw it at me. I'll I'll take it. When in doubt, give me a packet of Tang and I'll be happy. (laughs) Tang, wine flavored Tang. We're ready to go. It's like the astronauts drink. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.